So Nick, I'm really glad we had the OBG project to refer to when we made this HS episode. Yeah, you know, and actually I would even go back to say with cholestasis and with so many of our other episodes, the OBG project is like a great place to start to get the quick summary. And then they even have additional reading for us or for our listeners to dive into the topic further. Absolutely. Um, and so if you also are part of their subscription service, OBG First, you can also create your own bookshelf so that you can have your articles to go back to. They'll also send you emails and things like that about the latest journal articles and findings so that you're always up to date on the most recent literature. If you're a chief resident, you can actually get OBG First for absolutely free for one whole year. Head on over to our website, creogsovercoffee.com. Check out the sidebar. There's a link where you can get signed up for OBG First. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Creogs Over, over Coffee. coffee. Right. So this week we're back for part four of cardiac disease and pregnancy. And this week we're going to talk about some other things like pulmonary hypertension. I know you've all been waiting for it. So Faye, what are our learning objectives? All right. So our learning objectives, we are going to understand pulmonary hypertension for myself as well um, and how it affects pregnancy. We are going to learn about aortic complications in pregnancy and how that that can be affected and also general considerations for cardiovascular disease um, in pregnancy overall. Yeah. So let's get started. All right. Um, let's start with pulmonary hypertension. So what is pulmonary hypertension? Pulmonary hypertension refers to an elevation in the mean pulmonary artery arterial pressure greater than or equal to about 25 millimeters of mercury on right heart catheterization. Pulmonary arterial hypertension is a subset of pulmonary hypertension of itself that's characterized by left ventricular filling pressure that is less than or equal to 15 millimeters mercury and a pulmonary vascular resistance over three wood units. I know that's a lot of like, you know, what are you throwing at me, Nick? Like these numbers of like right heart cathing people, like this is so strange. Let's talk about though why it's important in pregnancy and we'll kind of get a little bit more into some mechanistic stuff later on. In pregnancy, women with pulmonary hypertension have fairly high mortality and depending on the type of pulmonary hypertension, mortality estimates can range from like 9 to 28%. There is a recommendation generally to avoid pregnancy in in patients with pulmonary hypertension, um, and termination should certainly be discussed um, with any patient who has pulmonary hypertension, just because, again, of the high risk. The greatest risk for patients with pulmonary hypertension in pregnancy actually occurs during labor and immediately postpartum, and the causes of death most commonly are pulmonary hypertensive crises, pulmonary thrombosis, and right heart failure. Again, you have a lot of strain on this right ventricle um, trying to pump through, and if you can't effectively oxygenate blood because you have basically the right heart falling behind and right heart failure, um, that can be totally disastrous in pregnancy. Considerations for what to do if they get pregnant. Um, echocardiography certainly should evaluate right heart function, um, or heart function in general, but right heart function in particular. 
And actually, you know, something that people don't do very commonly, but in pregnancy can be worthwhile with a cardiac team is to consider right heart catheterization, um, particularly if there's diagnostic uncertainty. This allows you to directly measure those pulmonary arterial pressures um, and get a sense for the severity of the disease and the function of the right ventricle. A multidisciplinary team is certainly needed to care for a patient with pulmonary hypertension who's pregnant in a tertiary care center. Certainly, these patients should not be delivering in the community. Um, these are very, very high-risk pregnancies. Anticoagulation for thromboembolism should be considered as well um, because VTE does have such a major risk of mortality in these patients in particular. Um, and often these patients will need aggressive diuresis throughout pregnancy, particularly if heart failure develops. In terms of delivery itself, a multidisciplinary delivery team is again, needed that's going to consist of maternal fetal medicine or obstetricians, your cardiology team, in particular pulmonary hypertension team, and truthfully, probably your MICU as well, um, your intensive care unit docs. These are patients who, like, not uncommonly end up getting labored while in the ICU because, again, of the high risk of acute total decompensation. Vaginal delivery can be associated with big volume changes during those contractions. Remember that uterus squeezes, pushes all that blood into the right ventricle. Um, and then if patients can't deal with that increased strain on that right heart because of all the extra fluid coming in, and this is an issue in women or patients with pulmonary hypertension, they can't increase cardiac output effectively. Remember that cardiac output increases 30% in the first stage of labor and over 50% in the second stage of labor. Planned cesarean ultimately may be a better choice, but you need to monitor hemodynamic arterial and central venous pressure um, during cesarean delivery in order to ensure safety. Postpartum, these patients need strict, 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 and I'll say it again, strict I's and O's. Again, they often will need very, very aggressive diuresis. Um, to help with those fluid shifts that occur postpartum that'll again put strain on that right ventricle. And I will have to say that, you know, the times that I have seen a patient with pulmonary hypertension um, deliver, it's usually something that is planned well in advance where cardiology and anesthesia and, you know, the SICU or MICU are all aware of the day that they are coming in for their C-section um, with like a plan of where they're going to go for postpartum recovery, how many lines they're going to be having, you know. This is not one that is left up to chance laboring at home and coming in when uh, when you're ready. Okay, so that was like a very sort of scary start to this podcast, I think, Faye. Um, but yeah. we're gonna we're gonna talk through some scary stuff today. So we've got a couple of aortic conditions that we also wanted to highlight. Right. So the first one that I wanted to talk about was Marfan syndrome. Marfan syndrome, as you all probably know, is a overall condition that leads to um, quite a few things. So one that we care about most in pregnancy is that aortic root dilation, because overall there is a higher risk of aortic dissection associated with pregnancy, about 3%. The aortic size is a major determinant of this risk, but even people with an aortic root of less than 40 millimeters, which is kind of usually that cutoff that we look at, have a risk of dissection of about 1%. Pregnancy really should be avoided in patients with Marfan syndrome if their aortic root is greater than 45 millimeters, because again, they just are at such high risk for dissection. If that aortic root is 
between 40 to 45 millimeters, other factors like rate of growth, family history, and all those things should be considered. I will have to say that for um, certain patients, if they do have a dilated aortic root, sometimes prior to pregnancy, they can go and see their cardiac surgeon and they can actually repair their aortic root or reimplant it. And that does definitely um, improve their chances in pregnancy. The other thing that I wanted to very briefly touch on is bicuspid aortic valve. Remember that aortic valve usually has three leaflets, and so it can be considered a normal variant, quote unquote, to have two leaflets of the aortic valve. But in certain t- cases, the biotic aortic valve can lead to aortic dilation, which occurs in less than 50% of people with this bicuspic aortic valve. But this is something that we definitely need to monitor, and the dilation can actually be in that distal ascending aorta, which is not always well seen with an echocardiogram. Um, the risk of dissection is overall small, but there still is that risk of dissection, um, certainly less than that in Marfan syndrome, but we should also counsel these patients to avoid pregnancy if that aortic diameter is greater than 50 millimeters, so that cutoff is a little bit higher than in Marfan syndrome. After we talked about all of these things, I, we kind of wanted to summarize a little bit about um, cardiac disease in pregnancy in general. So Nick, let's talk a little bit about some general considerations um, in pregnancy for people who have cardiac disease. Yeah, and I think let's break this down into a couple categories. So we'll go through sort of maternal cardiac testing. We'll focus a little bit especially on genetic testing and counseling. Then we'll go into labor and delivery things. And then finally, we'll talk about fetal assessment stuff. So with maternal cardiac testing, um, certainly things that should be generally considered include an EKG. Echocardiogram is also generally helpful. Echo in particular can be helpful with unexplained or new cardiovascular signs or symptoms, or in patients who have known cardiac disease who are undergoing pregnancy. And even serial echocardiography may be recommended over the course of pregnancy to monitor for changes in the heart. Exercise testing is another thing that can be considered in terms of kind of pre-pregnancy counseling or with the outset of pregnancy to understand a patient's baseline clinical function before taking that pregnancy. Other tests, again, can be guided by your cardiologist and really depend on the type of disease that you have. Again, we mentioned at the beginning of this episode with pulmonary hypertension, things like right heart catheterization. You may have patients who benefit from cardiac MRI, particularly if they have a history of ischemic cardiac disease. Again, your cardiologists will be excellent resources in terms of what things to consider to get a sense of the stress and problems for a patient that may be encountered during pregnancy, labor, and delivery. Genetic testing and counseling is sort of a separate subset in terms of testing for mom. Um, So pre-pregnancy counseling, of course, is important. And again, go back to our first episode on cardiac disease and pregnancy for a quick overview of the risk assessment with the modified WHO classification of maternal risk. That's a good place to start out. Um, And then again, you can use some of those antenatal testing things to get a sense of how mom will do. High-risk patients, again, should be treated by a multidisciplinary team. And genetic counseling, again, should be considered if patients have a history of congenital heart disease or congenital arrhythmias, they have a history of cardiomyopathy, any sort of aortic disease, again, as Faye mentioned, Marfan syndrome, bicuspid valve, Turner syndrome that can be associated with this, or other genetic conditions associated with cardiovascular disease. 
And sort of the why of this is actually that genetic counselors can be super helpful in sort of broadening and considering the differential diagnosis and also counseling patients about what to expect for their own children. Um, there's an increased risk of fetal congenital heart disease in moms who have these issues where the baseline risk is about 1%, but increases to 3 to 5% in moms who have these conditions. Faye, well, let's switch gears now and kind of talk about labor and delivery. Yeah, I know in our last few episodes, we've talked a little bit about labor and delivery considerations for, you know, certain types of congenital heart defects. But just in general, I feel like, you know, some of the things that we wanted to wrap up is that just because somebody has some type of cardiac disease in pregnancy does not mean that they have to have a cesarean delivery. And in fact, most of the time, a vaginal delivery, whether with or without a second stage, is recommended as the first choice, um, unless really they have the following. Um, so those things like dilation of the ascending aorta of greater than 45 millimeters in someone who has Marfan syndrome, if they have severe aortic stenosis, pulmonary hypertension tension, Eisenmenger syndrome, severe heart failure. And sometimes, you know, in someone who is in labor and they've taken their oral anticoagulation and they're not able to get that epidural, for example, and they really are not able to go into labor and be able to tolerate the discomforts of labor, those people may also um, be recommended for a cesarean section. Induction of labor really should be considered for these patients. Um, we know that with congenital cardiac um, disease in pregnancy, that pregnancy is putting more risk um, on that person who is pregnant. And so really you should talk to these um, patients about having some type of induction of labor, um, usually by 40 weeks, um, though really in those patients who have very, very low risk. So for example, um, someone who has like a repaired ASD or something like that and has great um, cardiac function prior to pregnancy, you may consider later on. In terms of postpartum, really discuss um, you know, postpartum birth control as well as prevention of the next pregnancy if that is something that your patient desires because certainly um, a lot of these patients are not people who we want to become pregnant by accident. A lot of times they really need to have that preconception counseling as well as planning um, of that pregnancy. And finally, always consider postpartum testing of maternal cardiac status if the, your cardiologist feel like that is indicated. Um, and finally, in terms of fetal assessment, um, during pregnancy, usually we would recommend getting a fetal echo if the pregnant person has a history of congenital heart disease. And again, that's just because there is an elevated risk of fetal anomalies to, um, to these people. Um, there's also consideration of getting growth ultrasounds as there's a higher risk of fetal growth restriction as well as fetal testing. So Nick, I know we haven't covered a lot of cardiac diseases. And those things include things like pre-existing dilated cardiomyopathy, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, arrhythmias, all of those things. There, there's really a lot to cover. And so, you know, we wanted to really kind of cover a lot of what we would consider to be congenital cardiac anomalies and how that can affect pregnancy. Um, but anyway, I think that does bring us to the end of our episode. And certainly we can consider all these other problems in future episodes. But let's go ahead and summarize. Yeah, so again, for today, we talked primarily about pulmonary hypertension, referring to that increase in mean pulmonary arterial pressure with right heart cath. Pulmonary hypertension is a special topic because mortality is high in women with pulmonary hypertension in pregnancy. Certainly, anyone who's taking counseling, either preconception or at the outset of pregnancy, should consider avoiding or terminating pregnancy. The greatest risk of death is during labor and immediately postpartum, often due to hypertensive crisis, pulmonary thrombosis, or right heart failure. Um, multidisciplinary teams are needed. Again, 
common tests for these situations include echocardiography and maybe even invasive right heart catheterization if there's diagnostic uncertainty. Um, anticoagulation and diuretics are also generally part of the treatment plan. Um, vaginal delivery can be problematic, often due to the increased demands on the right heart during labor and delivery. Again, cardiac output increases 30% in the first stage and over 50% in the second stage of labor. And if you don't have the right heart ability to keep up with that, these women can go into catastrophic right heart failure. Um, so planned cesarean can be a better choice, but you need invasive hemodynamic monitoring typically. Postpartum, again, strict, strict, strict I's and O's to observe closely for those fluid shifts um, and oftentimes need aggressive diuresis to optimize that right ventricular function. We also talked about a couple of things that could cause um, increased risk for aortic dissection. So those things include Marfan syndrome and bicuspid aortic valve with um, aortic root dilation. These patients with Marfan syndrome, for example, really should be counseled to avoid pregnancy if the aortic root is greater than 45 millimeters. Um, and also consideration of things like rate of growth and family history if that aortic root is, greater, is between 40 to 45 millimeters. Similarly, in bicuspid aortic valve, because of that risk of aortic dissection, if the aortic diameter is greater than 50 millimeters, pregnancy should be avoided. We then talked a little bit more about just general considerations for pregnancy with patients with cardiac disease, and those things include um, EKGs as well as echocardiograms, which can be used for unexplained or new cardiovascular signs or symptoms, exercise testing, and other tests as indicated by your cardiologist, and then, of course, um, counseling these patients about their risk specifically, talking to them about the modified WHO classification for them, and also um, considering treatment with a multidisciplinary pregnancy heart team. And finally, genetic counseling should also be considered because we do know that patients with congenital heart disease have a higher risk of passing on congenital heart disease and other abnormalities to their fetus. With respect to labor and delivery, some general considerations again that vaginal delivery is actually generally recommended as a first choice for most patients with cardiac disease, um, though with notable exceptions for dilation of the ascending aorta over 45 millimeters, severe aortic stenosis, preterm labor while on oral anticoagulants, pulmonary hypertension, Eisenmenger syndrome, or severe heart failure. Again, if you're undertaking vaginal delivery, you should consider induction by 40 weeks at the latest. Um, and postpartum, you should consider, again, all of the potential consequences of some of those fluid shifts with the postpartum period. But then a special attention should be paid to discussion of birth control um, and discussion of future pregnancy or prevention of future pregnancy. Um, postpartum testing of maternal cardiac status is also warranted um, and close follow-up with cardiology or whomever makes up your multidisciplinary team should be discussed. When considering the fetus, um, fetal echoes should be performed when there's any elevated risk of fetal abnormality of the cardiovascular system. Notably, again, as we discussed genetics, there is an increased risk in patients themselves who have cardiac disease of the fetus having cardiac disease as well. Growth ultrasounds should be considered serially as generally in these patients there's a higher risk of fetal growth restriction. Um, and there also should be consideration for antenatal testing too. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of our last episode of Cardiac Disease and Pregnancy. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee.
So if you enjoyed the episode today, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee. And you can also find us on our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. Give us a donation. We might give you a shout out on the show or some swag. You can find show notes for this episode and all of our previous episodes on our website, www.CreogsOverCoffee.com. And if you found a mistake in this episode or any other episode or just want to hit us up, go ahead and email us, CreogsOverCoffee at gmail.com. 